The rule of law requires that the law is simple, clear, and accessible. Yet English law has become increasingly more complex, unclear, and inaccessible. As modern life becomes more complex and challenging, we should pause and reflect whether this increasing complexity is the right direction and what it means for fairness and access to justice. This lecture examines the main areas of our legal system, legislation, procedure, and judgments, and seeks to identify some of the causes of complexity and considers what scope there is for creating a better, simpler, and brighter future for the law. The slightly provocative but I think accurate title for my talk this evening is English Law and Descent into Complexity. The great Ernst Friedrich Schumacher said, any intelligent fool can make things bigger, more complex and more violent. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. In his pivotal book, Small is Beautiful, a study of economics as if people mattered, Schumacher espoused the theories of his teacher, Leopold Kohl, that small, appropriate technologies or polities are the way to empower people. Big and complex is not necessarily better than small and simple. So it should be, I suggest, also with the law. I was taught that English common law was a beautiful thing. It had a self-simplifying mechanism. Elegant common law principles would grow tall in the forest and then fall like great redwood trees clearing away the undergrowth. But as Sir Stephen Irwin reminded us in his insightful 2018 Peter Taylor lecture, Complexity and Obscurity in the Law, English case law has had its own problems with complexity. From early days, English common law developed incrementally and empirically in a manner which inspired or reflected British empiricists such as Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. But over time, a complex pattern of established decisions, clear in each case, relatively predictable, became uncertain, unpredictable, and altered in outcome, or at least potentially so. This was exacerbated by the subsequent contest between the common law and the courts of equity. The common lawyer's response has been to make ever more elaborate and specific the language in an effort to define legal rights with more particularity. But as Sir Stephen said, the ordinary citizen is often baffled, dismayed, and cynical. I agree. Year on year, decade on decade, the world and life seems to become more complex with new technologies, new opportunities, new individual and societal frictions, and all at a faster and faster pace. Meanwhile, the law seems to have grown like topsy. The algorithms and manifestations of the law have multiplied exponentially and become ever more complex and voluminous. The fact is, we labor under the heavy yoke of a lot of law, 
and a lot of dense, complex law at that. Does the law really have to be more complex as the world becomes more complex? Or should we take a leaf out of E.F. Schumacher's book and move in the opposite direction towards the Shangri-La of simplicity? I venture to suggest that the more complex modern life becomes, the more important it is constantly to strive to simplify the law. Only in this way can we properly meet the increasing challenges and exigencies of modern life and technology and avoid descending yet further into the morass of legal volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Complexity breeds complexity and a downward spiral. Complexity undermines the rule of law. We're not alone in the United Kingdom in grappling with the virus of complexity. The American political scientist Professor Stephen Tellers coined the term kludgeocracy to describe the complexities and overregulation of modern American government. A kludge, as you will know from the Oxford English Dictionary, is, quotes, an ill-assorted collection of parts assembled to fulfill a particular purpose. It's comforting to know that this is not a new concern. Kludgeocracy also troubled our 16th century monarch, Edward VI, who lamented, I wish that the superfluous and tedious statutes were brought into one sum together and made more plain and short. Should laws ideally be clear, simple, and certain? Even Homer Simpson would say the answer is obviously yes. But we don't live in an ideal world. I'll come back later to why we find some of this so difficult in practice. It's worth reminding ourselves first as to what three distinguished commentators say about this fundamental aspect of the law. In his seminal book, A Theory of Justice, John Rawls contemplates the rule of law in its substantive form. Rawls posits that there is an essential connection between the rule of law and liberty, as the rules of the legal system are designed for the purposes of regulating conduct and providing the framework for social cooperation. He goes on to point out that if the basis of these claims are unsure, so are the boundaries of men's liberties. Rawls recognized that the rule of law demands that laws be known and expressly promulgated, that their meaning be clearly defined. If statutes are vague and imprecise, what we are at liberty to do is likewise vague and imprecise. The boundaries of liberty are uncertain. In his indispensable monograph, The Rule of Law, which every judge keeps under their wig, Lord Bingham advanced eight principles that comprise the rule of law, including the basic precept, quote, the law must be accessible and so far as possible, intelligible, clear, and predictable. Lord Bingham gave three reasons for this. First, as far as the criminal law is concerned, citizens need to know what it is that they must do, 
or refrain from doing on pain of criminal penalty. Second, and more generally, if citizens are to claim their legal rights and perform their obligations, they need to know what is required. Third, the successful conduct of trade, investment and business generally is promoted by a body of accessible legal rules governing commercial rights and obligations. No one would choose to do business, perhaps involving large sums of money, in a country where the party's rights and obligations were vague and undecided. And in his marvellous book, The Constitutional Balance, the late and much lamented Sir John Laws emphasised that the rule of law required certainty as well as fairness. Simple and clear rules are important across both the formal and substantive aspects of the rule of law, i.e. both the form of laws and the boundaries, the substantive boundaries, between individual rights and society. Complexity hinders access to the law. Accessibility is central to the rule of law. It is indeed a fundamental constitutional principle recognised in UK law, in EU law, and in the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights. Law cannot be accessible if it is unduly complex or unclear. This is particularly true for the disadvantaged in society. So we can be pretty sure of one thing, that simplicity in the law is good, complexity is not so good. There is a false comfort in complexity. It may look and feel impressively sophisticated and intellectual, but is it sensible and practical? The same principle applies in most walks, most walks of life, that simplicity is generally your friend and complexity is generally your enemy. As was once memorably said when in the context of examining the causes of the Columbia and Challenger space shuttle accidents, quote, NASA was so complex it could not describe itself to others. I cast a fragrant bouquet in the direction of Welsh law for two reasons. First, Wales has had a long and distinguished history of seeking to clarify and simplify its laws. As the many well-read Welsh benches of Gray's Inn will know, the preamble to the Book of Iworth from 1240 notes that the 10th century laws of Hwildar involved a codification of the law and the ordering of it into published books. And by the common counsel and agreement of the wise men who came there, they examined the old laws, and some of them they allowed to continue, others they amended, others they wholly deleted, and others they laid down anew. Second, the new Welsh Law Reform Project will, the Law Commission say, be groundbreaking in the United Kingdom and will lead Wales to create codified legislation for the future and present the law in ways that will help citizens have access to it. Why then is there so much complexity in the law? This is itself a complex question which others have written a great deal about 
and would occupy a separate lecture. But let me just mention a few causes. One, the explosion of legislation and regulation over the past 70 years. Two, globalization and a much more interconnected world at all levels. Three, an increasing emphasis on individual rights, some of which Hofeld might previously have categorized as liberties. More prosaically, fourth, an explosion of law reporting. You can find these days pretty much authority for any proposition if you look hard enough. Five, the advent of the digital, digital age and the tyranny of cut and paste. And six, dare I say it, the ingenuity of counsel, thinking of clever and obscure points which, takes, which take us judges a lot of time to work out. But query, ultimately, do they advance the sum total of legal knowledge? There is also an admirable culture of counsel of perfection, which has pervaded the development of English law mostly to its great benefit, namely a desire to devise laws, rules, and exceptions that cover all potential scenarios and achieve uber-consistency and predictability. But this can sometimes be self-defeating and lead in practice to difficulty, obfuscation, and uncertainty. As Arthur Conan Doyle said, a council of perfection is easy at a study table. As Voltaire said, perfect is the enemy of the good. Sometimes the perfect can simply mean lawyers endlessly arguing amongst themselves in their own Tower of Babel. Sometimes the pragmatic and workmanlike is better than the legally perfect. Because perfect is often just simply in the eye of the beholder. Anyway, enough of that. I'd like to turn to highlight one major particular feature which forms the backdrop to this discussion namely the rise of what academics have termed the regulatory state in the United Kingdom since the Second World War. This has, of course, been the most significant cause of the volume and density of laws in this country. The privatization of key industries and public utilities by the early 50s led to the growth of regulation with each newly privatized industry spawning its own regulator. There was a shift from self-regulation by sectors such as accounting, law, medicine, and finance to statutory regulation. There were also new statutory protections against societal risks, such as workplace health and safety, consumer protection, and pollution. There was a significantly enlarged public administration. The welfare state grew rapidly in scale and importance, and with it, regulatory codes to direct the relevant bodies. The architects of the 1980s privatizations apparently intended regulation, the regulation to be temporary. Some commentators believe that such regulation was a means of simply holding the fort until competition arrived. Instead, the regulation has become permanent. There are good reasons for this. Many of the privatized industries were monopolies. The utilities provided essential services. 
or the industry has produced negative externalities. A further catalyst has been the need to implement EU policy through the technique of regulation. A further major cause of regulation has been the desire to manage risks of all sorts. A lack of effective regulation has led to crises in various industries, from the financial crash to foot and mouth. Increasing public demand for government action on issues such as climate change has meant that the state is likely to play a greater role in the direction of society in the coming years. Regulation is seen as a way to protect society from the failures of the state and business actors. The regulatory state is here to stay. The trade and cooperation agreement between the EU and the United Kingdom means that there will not be a regression of labour, social and environmental standards and the multiple committees governing the relationship points to more rules, not less. It's easy to feel misty-eyed about the days when statutes were short and judgments were shorter, and I sometimes do. My favourite statute is the Parliament Qualification of Women Act, 1918. There's a prize for getting how many words in it. It is precisely 27 words, which I'm glad to say have not been amended in the past 100 years, and it reads, a woman shall not be disqualified by sex or marriage for being elected to or sitting or voting as a member of the Commons House of Parliament. It's easy to feel misty-eyed about the golden age of the common law, starring Ballons, Pollock and Park, and of course, Mr. Justice Blackburn, as he then was. Other heroes of mine are Lord Justice Grutton and Dr. Lushington, whose judgments regularly, regularly did not exceed a few pages. But let's look at where we are today. The complexity of legislation must be set in the context of its increasing volume. Since the 1970s, the number of Acts of Parliament passed each session has in fact fallen from over 70 to about 50 in 2010. However, this masks the rise in pages per Act, which has risen fourfold from some 20 pages to 86 pages in the modern day. During the same period, the average number of clauses included within each Act has more than doubled. Likewise, the number of statutory instruments has increased from about 2,000 in the 1970s to an average of 3,000 in 2010 to 2019. Between 1983 and 2009, Parliament enacted over 100 criminal justice bills. That's approximately four a year. And over 4,000 new criminal offences were created. That's about 160 a year. It's been reported that immigration rules and guidance now runs to over a million words, which some of you will know is greater than the number of words in all the Harry Potter books combined. What would Professor Dumbledore have said? In the 21st century alone, there have been eight immigration acts. Complex legislation comes in principally two forms. The first 
is outdated legislation drafted in another era, which is badly in need of reform for the modern age. For instance, the laws regulating marriage, which have seen little change since their genesis from the Marriage Act in 1836. The Law Commission has stated that the current rules are unduly complex and overly restrictive and in need of modernization. The second type is legislation which was born complex and then repeatedly amended to make it even more unintelligible. The most notorious example is immigration law, which has been universally criticized by legal commentators and journalists alike. As the Law Commission again commented in its recent consultation, simplifying the immigration rules, a significant cause of complexity has been the prescriptive approach adopted by the Home Office, which quotes, generates a need for frequent amendment in a cycle of detail begetting detail. As William of Ockham said, entities should not procreate themselves, nor should legislation. Another example of the genre is social security legislation, which Lady Hale said is supposed to be understood by anyone who has or may make a claim on it, which she said is practically almost everyone. But we know the reality is somewhat different. Even the lawyers have difficulty sometimes. The statutes are unconsolidated and complex in structure. The primary legislation often provides only a skeletal framework to be filled in by secondary legislation. Both suffer from frequent amendment. In his entertaining memoirs, Frederick Reynolds, QC, said in Chance, Cheek and Some Heroics uh, that he recalls doing a case about a piece of social security and benefits legislation which involved a triple negative, which neither he nor his worthy opponent, one John Laws, the then Treasury Devil, could understand. Finding the right balance between the prescriptive and permissive is not easy. Too much of the latter risks the arbitrary exercise of discretion by decision makers. Too much of the former means there is less scope for the application of common sense in accordance with the policy and purpose of the rules. It's worth reminding ourselves of the audience of legislation. Formerly, legislation was principally accessed by lawyers, but over the last 20 years, legislation has become much more accessible. Legislation.gov.uk has between two to three million visitors per month. This group of people will range from small businesses trying to understand their regulatory environment to litigants in person who are bringing a small personal injury claim to students who volunteer to the Citizens Advice Bureau. All these users have the same needs, that legislation is simply drafted and easy to understand. Clear, accessible and effective legislation is fundamental to the health and good functioning of a democratic society. To be, to be fair, there have been some admirable examples of simpler legislation recently. For instance, the Equality Act in 2010 harmonized and simplified anti-discrimination law and distilled nine pieces of primary and secondary legislation. The Consumer Rights Act of 2015 replaced existing consumer protection legislation 
and provided consumers with new rights and remedies. In March 2013, the Office of Parliamentary Counsel published an important report entitled, When Laws Become Too Complex. In his powerful foreword, Sir Richard Heaton, then First Parliamentary Counsel, wrote, we should regard the current degree of difficulty with law as neither inevitable nor acceptable. Excessive complexity hinders economic activity, creating burdens for individuals, businesses, and, and communities. It obstructs good government. It undermines the rule of law. A striking theme of this report is that while there are many reasons for adding complexity, there is no compelling incentive to create simplicity or to avoid making an intricate web of laws even more complex. That is something I think we must reflect upon. In April 2013, the Office of Parliamentary Council launched the Good Law Initiative with the aim of making statutory law necessary, effective, clear, and accessible. As Sir Richard Heaton again said, we need to establish a sense of shared accountability within and beyond government for the quality of what, perhaps misleadingly, we call our statute book, and to promote a shared professional pride in it. In doing so, I, I hope we can create confidence amongst users that legislation is for them. I share Sir Richard's hope that we can establish a shared sense of accountability in this important endeavour. It is time to refresh these ideals and make good law for the 21st century. In that regard, I'd like to give a shout out to the work of the Law Commission. The Law Commission was established in 1965 as an independent body to recommend changes to the law that will make the law, quotes, simpler, fairer, more modern and cost effective. Under the leadership of the recent chair, Sir David Bean, and its current chair, Sir Nicholas Green, the Law Commission has continued its important mission. In 2018, the Law Commission proposed a new sentencing code which simplifies complex provisions and replaces historic legislation. The Law Commission's proposal was accepted by the government and has been implemented in the Sentencing Act 2020. In 2020, the Law Commission also published its report the simplification of the immigration rules, which highlighted the complexity of the immigration rules that I've referred to and the confusion between rules and guidance, which resulted in inefficient and error-prone administration. The Law Commission's 12th programme of law reform involves renewing the law applicable in Wales, to which I have referred. In case you are getting heady with excitement, I want to turn next to procedure. In his 1996 Access to Justice report, Lord Wolfe said that his task was, quotes, to produce a single, simpler procedure and code to apply to civil litigation in the High Court and the County Courts. His laudable aim was, in his words, to reduce complexity and make the system more amenable to actual, actual users and more acceptable to ordinary citizens, whether litigants or not. It should reduce the learning and processing costs of courts and lawyers. 
how often have good intentions to simplify led to greater complexity? In 2013, the Civil Procedure Rule Committee asked itself, should the rules be simpler? A working party reached the conclusion that radical amendment so as to produce greatly simplified rules was simply not feasible within the framework of the CPR as currently constructed. As one contributor put it, it is, quotes, beyond the wit of the rule committee to simplify the rules. And there was a real concern that a major attempt at simplification would simply lead to greater complexity, as indeed had previously uh, happened when the CPR was brought in in 1999. In his 2015 lecture in this series, Civil Litigation, Should the Rules Be Simpler?, Sir Stephen Richards gave a compelling explanation as to the reasons why things had not turned out as Lord Wolfe expected them to. And what was intended to be a simplified procedural code had turned out to be a substantially larger and more complex body of rules than it replaced. Sir Stephen even brandished a copy of Volume 1 of the White Book, which he brought with him from this podium. Volumes 1 and 2 of the current White Book run to over 6,000 pages. In only 20 years of the CPR's existence, there have been no less than 124 updates. Beyond the procedure rules and practice directions, there are various protocols, guides, and practice statements. Unrepresented litigants must also refer to a 160-page handbook for litigants in person. As Lord Briggs observed in his court, civil court structure review, an increasing proportion of court users are self-represented, who are self-represented are, quotes, gravely hampered by the complexity of civil procedure, which means that equality between wealthy litigants and the under-resourced is still a distant prospect. In Barton versus Wright-Hassel, the Supreme Court considered the plight of a litigant in person who had served his, email, his claim by email, which is only permissible under the rules if the other party has agreed to service by email. The Supreme Court decided the service without, service without such prior notification was invalid under the rules, and therefore so was the claim. But there is no special treatment for litigants in person. The need for non-Byzantine rules, which ordinary people can reasonably understand and observe, is even greater. Guess how long, incidentally, the Swiss procedure, civil procedure code is, which covers everything to do with Swiss civil procedure, as indeed it says on the tin. Only 100 pages, i.e. under 2% of the length of the white books. It's like the Swiss Army penknife, compact, but can, it can do a lot of stuff. Some think that our monolithic white book has become an embarrassment in a modern jurisdiction. As the Rule Committee has observed, radical amendment within the current framework of the CPS is not an easy gig, to put it mildly. But a glimmer of light lies in innovation, the ongoing reform modernization program of the courts. The future of the courts and tribunals is 
digital. The reform program is creating new digital platforms for civil, family, and tribunal cases. Reform of procedure should be aligned with this process. By combining and simplifying the myriad of procedural rules and rewriting them with litigants in person and technology in mind. We might also look abroad for inspiration as how best to do this. A report published in 2015 by an advisory committee under the auspices of the Civil Justice Council has proposed a fundamental change in the way the court system handles low-value civil claims by the introduction of an internet-based service known as Her Majesty's Online Court. The best hope for simplification is in starting again with a new way of conducting litigation, as with the online court, which is up and running, and trying to make the whole process, as well as the rules, as simple as possible from the outset. We'll have to wait and see how this works out in practice. A creative approach should also be adopted to increasing the public's access to the rules. The relevant bodies must engage with the public and understand their needs with a view to presenting the rules in an interactive format which is simple and easy to understand. From blogs to podcasts, there are multiple ways in today's digital environment to generate an understanding of the procedure of our legal system. Justice requires public confidence in our legal system from citizens of all ages. Only after achieving these successes will we, will we be able to say uh, truly that our civil justice simple system is simple, cheap, and less time-consuming. Let me turn to the criminal procedure rules briefly. These comprise a remarkable, impressive body of work over many years of development covering the whole gamut of criminal procedure in the magistrate's courts, the Crown Court, the Court of Appeal, and in extradition appeal cases and in the High Court. Like most bodies of rules, these have been developed and refined incrementally over many years. I pause to mention them simply to applaud the work that is currently being undertaken to make the rules more accessible and easier to understand. I'd like to turn, if I may, for a moment, to discuss the growth of judicial review, which has been one of the most remarkable phenomena of English law in the last 50 years. Administrative law now represents one of the largest fields of jurisprudence. There is, of course, much to admire in the scholastic development of public law remedies. However, one has to query whether this is a body of public law which has become too complex for its own good and, frankly, for the good of the public. Back in the day, you may recall that there used to be a case called Wensbury, which set out the standard of unreasonableness of decisions by public bodies, which would make them liable to be quashed on judicial review. It's worth reminding ourselves of Lord Green's famous formulation, which became known as Wensbury unreasonableness. The Court of Appeal held that it could not intervene to overturn the decision simply because it disagreed with it, 
to have the right to intervene, the court would have to conclude that, one, in making the decision, the defendant took into account factors that ought not to have been taken into account, or two, the defendant failed to take into account factors which ought to have been taken into account, or three, the decision was so unreasonable that no reasonable authority would ever consider imposing it. The court held that the decision did not fall under any of these categories, and the claim failed. Not a bad test, you may think. Simple, practical, and easy to understand at the time. Since then, however, the constant refinement and enigma variations of Wensbury and the spawning of a myriad of different public law tests in an attempt to achieve perfection in every scenario has led to a great deal of obscurity and entanglement. Bright lines are no bad thing in the good administration of justice and good government. Not everything can be nuanced. In the slightly Alice in Wonderland world of close or anxious or intense or quite intense scrutiny in public law, you'll forgive me for asking, is today Wensbury or Thursbury or Frybury? Can I turn finally to my own domain, judgments? Guess what was the shortest judgment ever written? Probably Chief Justice John Marshall's six-word opinion in United States versus Barker, 1817, which read simply, the Supreme Court never pays costs, full stop. No arguing with that. Lord Atkins' seminal opinion in Donahue and Stevenson in 1932 only ran to seven pages. Lord Bingham regarded the judgments of Lord Cook as, quote, shining examples of simplicity, brevity, and clarity. Judgments have certainly become longer and more complex since the good old days of Chief, Marshall, Chief Justice Marshall or Dr. Lushington. This is partly a function of the fact that many more judgments were given then extempore, orally, and there were fewer authorities to refer to. But it should be noted that the increase in lengths of judgment over the past couple of decades has been remarkable. Professor Alan Patterson noted that the number of paragraphs per case in the old House of Lords was 68 paragraphs, but the average number of paragraphs has risen by nearly a third to 89 paragraphs in the Supreme Court by March 2013. That figure continues to rise such that the average number of paragraphs now of Supreme Court judgments appears to be about 100. I think most judges, and I certainly put my hand up straight away and confess to have written some pretty long and discursive judgments. It is easier sometimes to do one's thinking on paper, though not as always as much fun for the reader. It's also easy to get tempted and distracted into writing about interesting points which are not essential to the outcome of the case. It's not always easy to get the balance right between explaining one's reasoning sufficiently and including too much detail and analysis, and sometimes legal archaeology 
which tends to obscure the thrust of the judgment or lead the reader to lose the will to live. I could, but I won't quote Pascal's famous maxim. We should be astute, we judges, to exercise the self-denying ordinance of only dealing with the key points in issue and not be tempted to write exegesis on points which don't. Ideally, we should also avoid excessive citation of authority, in particular cutting and pasting large chunks of cases into judgments, and seek in simple form to summarise the principles from the cases. Easier said than done, but actually infinitely more useful and satisfying. A fine recent example of this is Lord Justice Singh's illuminating judgment in Drexler, versus Leicestershire County Court in 2020, which sought to bring much-needed clarity to the manifestly without reasonable foundation test in the context of Article 14, which Lady Hale observed in Deere versus the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions in 2019 was, she said, a difficult question in administrative law. In its simplest terms, a judgment should tell the parties why the claim has failed or succeeded and what the relevant law is. It does not always have to be an academic treatise. Sometimes, to be fair to us judges, we're simply having to deal with a myriad of points and citation of authorities thrown at us by counsel. Without raising a cutthroat defence, can I echo the words of Sir Stephen Irwin? The excessively long and complex skeleton argument is a curse. Sometimes, hunting in a skeleton for the real point, uh, hidden somewhere in the 50-odd pages, is like finding where's Wally. Sometimes, as Sir Stephen Sedley said, the nemesis of the court's has been the photocopier. It's now much easier to tip a whole file into the machine rather than selecting the documents that are most important. Sometimes a division of labour is useful rather than all appellate judges tilling the same field. As Lady Hale recalls in Ahmed versus Newnham, LBC, she and Lord Newberger parceled up the issues and cooperated in answering them, but delivered separate opinions. Sometimes a measure of judicial archaeology is necessary to scrape away years of accretions of case law and comment in order to dig down to the foundations and remind everybody of the simple established principles in that area of law. It involves a lot of judicial midnight oil being spilt, but it is of great benefit to future generations. A fine example of this is Lord Justice David Richards' recent judgment in Wood versus Commercial First Business Limited 2021 in the field of bribery law. The genius of our legal system, and particularly the common law, has been its flexibility adaptability and durability over many centuries. Let us all rise to the challenge 
that the algorithms of the modern world present to us and do what E.F. Schumacher recommended, namely KISS. Keep it simple. Thank you very much. Justice Haddon Cave, thank you very much for a very interesting lecture. Um, our online audience has found it equally interesting, and we have quite a lot of questions this evening, but um, we're obviously not going to be able to get to all of them. I thought I might address a, a few to you. Um, I would like to ask, considering this complexity makes law more inaccessible to people, would you say that this worsens social inequality of legal justice, and if so, to what degree of disadvantage? I certainly think it exacerbates social inequality because as I said in my lecture, complexity harms accessibility to the law as well as making the law and the process more expensive, difficult and slow. The degree to which it does would require a great deal of research. But I think it's enough to, to know and state very clearly, as we should all recognize, that this is a real problem for society at all levels, particularly, as I said, um, the disadvantaged. Um, would you say COVID and online hearings have had an impact, whether desirable or not, on the complexity of law? I think... Uh, COVID has made everybody sit back and reflect more, as indeed I have in this lecture, about the, uh, the role of, of law. Um, and I think it's given everybody time to pause and think about some of the deeper aspects of life, society, and the law. I don't think that COVID has made necessarily the law more complex, um, but it has certainly made life a bit more complex in the last uh, 12, 14 months. Um, a slightly longer question. In some cases, especially equity cases, judgments mention as many cases or precedents as they possibly can. While this abides with the precedent-based nature of UK courts, it undeniably lengthens judgments. Would you say this adds complexity but is justified, or is the need to create simplicity more overwhelming? Well, as I said at the end of my lecture, sometimes it's necessary to go through the cases in order to bring some clarity to the law. And that's what I meant by archaeology. But the key thing, I think, is that the essence of the decision should be clear. And that's what Lord Justice Richards, David Richards did in his judgment he said these are the simple principles underlying the whole of this aspect of bribery law. And for future generations, that will be a very important uh, judgment. Um, I think one last one. Um, one area that seems to me to form a considerably complex labyrinth of legislation and rules in Britain today is the rehabilitation of people with criminal convictions. Do you feel this area would benefit from simplification in light of the socioeconomic benefits of rehabilitation? I think you'll have to ask my uh, colleague, Sir Nicholas Green, who's chair of the Law Commission, about that, that question. 
Um, and perhaps just one last one, if, if I may. Um, in the business world, the increase of arbitral tribunal proceedings with sometimes a mix of civil common law principles would appear to add its own set of complexities. I would be interested in his lordship's views in relation to this. Well, the, the growth of arbitration um, has been enormous in the last 20, 30 years, partly because of the Arbitration uh, Act and the interaction of uh, uh, arbitration and the law uh, if, of itself, of course, causes complexity. But there are many advantages for society and businesses in going down the arbitration route. Uh, what I will say is that one of the disbenefits, to my mind and, and others, of the Act was that it cut off, in a way, the the, the lifeblood of much of the growth of commercial law, a great deal of commercial law in the 50s and 60s and 70s was built on shipping and other commercial cases because of the way in which these cases came to the high court. Um, but the, that um, funnel of cases coming to, uh, to the court for the development of commercial law uh, has effectively narrowed greatly. Uh, so, in a way, that's a way of saying that commercial law has become simpler um, because um, there's been less development of it, which is not necessarily a good thing. But Justice Haddon Cave, I'd really like to thank you on behalf of the college uh, for your uh, presentation of the Greys in reading this year. As academic registrar, I'm standing in tonight for our provost, Professor uh, Simon Thurley, who has sadly been able to attend this evening, but I know he will be sad to have missed it. Um, it was really fascinating to hear your views on the increased complexity of the law and efforts to simplify and clarify. I'd like to thank you very much for your generosity in devoting your time to the reading this year and to um, answering the audience questions. This is going to be a really welcome addition to the Greys in Reading series, which can be accessed on the college website. I also wanted to thank our audience for your attention this evening and your participation. This is the final lecture in this year's academic program. Um, please keep your eyes out for next year's program, which will be released in September. We have some very exciting new lectures coming up, and we look forward to welcoming you back hopefully both online audiences and in person. Good evening. <laughs>